Welcome back to the program. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, I thank you, and I praise you for the gift of the sacraments, and I thank you in a very special way today, Lord, for the gift of confession. And Lord, I ask that you would give us, um, give us the grace to understand the sacrament more fully and enter into it more completely. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you have rescued me in my life. You've rescued my spiritual life. You've brought me from shame to freedom. You have given me a spiritual resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for the fresh start and the new beginning. Thank you that you long to meet me in confession, to forgive me even more than I long to be forgiven. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I I prayed some um, big things right there in that very short prayer as compared to yesterday with my long prayer on the program. Uh, how confession saved my spiritual life. And you know that's really what the church teaches, that confession, when you're confessing a mortal sin and you receive God's mercy and you become reconciled to God through the gift of absolution, you're experiencing a spiritual resurrection. The life of God is dead within you. And then all of a sudden through the ministry of this sacrament, through sanctifying grace being conveyed, you come alive again in the spiritual life. And that's so powerful. It just saying that out loud, think like, why would people not do that? Why do we avoid that? I, I, I want to say this. I think that one of the reasons is, is that we've lost a sense of reverence. And I think, frankly, we've also, um, many of us just are not in situations where our sin gets called out. And the challenge to be right with God gets called out. Uh, I bring that out into the open because where um, Carrie and I are typically going to Mass these days, um, the parish we belong to, uh, is this traditional Latin Mass parish. And my focus here is is really on confession, but one of the things I want to point out is that there are lines for confession at every single Mass. And there are typically two priests hearing confessions uh, before Mass and and even into the Mass, up until the homily, uh, they will be hearing confessions. And I think I might have said it. We we often will have two cars heading to St. Joan on a Sunday morning. One leaves in order to arrive a half an hour before Mass in order to get in line for confession. And and we did that uh, this past week, and there were four of us, five of us that went in order to make it to confession. And um, we were the last ones, and we got there 25 minutes before Mass. Um, Praise be to God. My kids got it. Now, full full disclosure, here's a confession. Um, One of my daughters, uh, Mary Catherine, uh, needed to go to confession. She had inadvertently, when she had flown home from Franciscan University, um, had... Um, missed Sunday Mass, and so because of the when she flew home, and uh, and so she needed to go to confession. So we were all there. She came in the second load, the second load of cars. <laughs> I said, Mary Catherine, you can take my place in line, because I didn't feel like it was right to have her cut right. So I had put in the time. I'd gotten there early. I had 
made my way. I was close to the front and I said, Mary Catherine, you can take my place. There we go. Um, I didn't have a mortal sin to confess, but uh, it was fine. So uh, I willingly gave up my place to her so that she could go to confession and thereby um, be able to go to Holy Communion. And there's the point. I mentioned that I think one of the reasons why we don't go to confession so much is that we're not challenged about our sin, and and we really lack a sense of reverence. And that, I got to admit, is one of the things that is really powerful about um, what happens at the beginning of every homily, at the beginning of every homily, when they have announcements, actually, before they do the homily, the first announcement is always that communion is only to be received by practicing Catholics who are um, who are in the state of grace. They, uh, and if they have a mortal sin, they must confess that mortal sin in the confession, in confession sacramentally to a priest, and be absolved of that sin before returning to Holy Communion. Otherwise, they're committing a sacrilege. And you hear that said out loud. You hear that said out loud. It, it leaves a mark. It really makes a difference. It strikes home. And it also then leads to things like, how are you dressed? How are you comporting yourself? And then the manner of receiving Holy Communion. I've talked about that before. But all of that, all of those different aspects are associated with the concept of reverence. Like, pay attention. There's something really important happening here. Something very powerful and significant. And it's not to be approached casually. It's not to be uh, entered into frivolously, but there ought to be a sense of sacredness, of reverence, and being in the state of grace. So I, I, I got to tell you that that is it's very refreshing to me because when we also end up going to mass in in English in, in a number of different parishes and often to um, St. Mary's, Father Jeff Lewis's parish or the cathedral. And it is still a regular occurrence that it just, it at least looks like, it just, there's a, a great sense of appearance. What does it appear like anyways? That there's a great sense of being casual about uh, the reception of Holy Communion and, you know, folks who often look like confused about what they're supposed to do when that it comes time to receive Holy Communion. And, and that idea of what I hear every week or any time I go to Mass uh, at St. Joan, I never hear, ever, never, ever, 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 ever hear. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe at a funeral, maybe, maybe at a wedding, maybe, maybe at, um, like, uh, maybe at a Christmas Mass, something like that. But it's extraordinarily rare, and it is um, it is mentioned in, in a in a way that you know, it, it's brought up and then it's let it go, and and so there's that sense of um, how serious is this? How how big a deal is this encounter with Jesus in Holy Communion? It's a big deal. It's a really big deal, right? Saint Thomas Aquinas says that the proper effect of receiving Holy Communion, the proper effect meaning the effect that God intends when he um, instituted this sacrament through Jesus Christ, 
is that the proper effect, the, the intended end or the goal of receiving Holy Communion is to transform the recipient into Christ. The transformation of the recipient, that's you and me, into Christ. That Christ comes to live in us and he grows in us. The, the, the life of Christ grows in us when we receive him worthily when we receive him in a state of grace. So there's a, there's a lot at stake in that. And when we don't, well, it's considered a sacrilege, right? It's, it's treating something, uh, it's, it's, it's failing to treat something with the proper reverence, respect, acknowledging the holiness and the Holy One in a way that is uh, fitting or suitable to the moment or the occasion. And um, and so that that's a sin. That's a terrible thing, and, and you can see how it, it it can diminish our sense of um, of the the dignity, the nobility, the uh, the way in which we ought to prepare for and engage in attending mass. So um, I, I can tell you that you know seeing one or other of my kids or of Carrie or, or of me. Um, making a decision not to go forward to receive Holy Communion, that's a pretty striking thing. It's a pretty striking thing to see that uh, there is that sense of, I ought to approach the altar. I ought to approach the reception of Holy Communion with the, with the, a clear conscience, with an awareness of uh, my, own, my own moral condition before God. So, Okay, so what was happening last night, uh, or as I'm recording this, uh, I'm recording this in what is your last night. Uh, I, my daughter Ariana said, "Hey, Dad, I'm looking for the Four Quartets by T. S. Eliot," and I had had a course in which we covered that, taught by uh, Dr. Thomas Howard, and it was an amazing, amazing course, uh, going through contemporary Christian literature, and that was one of the the short works we went through was the four quartets of T.S. Eliot, and to hear him teach about it was amazing, just very profound. Well, she needs it for her class. She has a high school class where they are reading the four quartets, which, first of all, I love. I just love that. And I said, oh, I have it somewhere. So we started digging through boxes of books. And, wow, a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun because these books have so much meaning to me. So uh, in one of the books, I just grabbed a handful, and I, I have them here. Two of them jump out at me as particularly poignant and relevant to right now. One is uh, published by the Congregation for Catholic Education, which is called Educational Guidance in Human Love. Educational Guidance in Human Love. It's Outlines for Sex Education. And... I won't go into it too much. <laughs> I'm not going to cover a lot of this, but let's just say this book that was published in 1984, 1984, is incredibly prophetic. It is, it is powerful. It, it's strong truth, this document. And uh, in the document, it talks about the um, the different roles and responsibilities 
associated with providing educational guidance in human love to children. And wow, it lays out the incredible role that parents have, right? That's our role as the primary educators. But then the way in which that role um, can be assisted and completed by parents, I'm sorry, by schools, furnishing children and adolescents with an evaluation of sexuality as value and task of the whole person created male and female in the image of God. And um, it it says all matters, uh, it, all matters can offer an opportunity to treat themes in relation to sexuality. The teacher will do so always in a positive key and with great delicacy, concretely evaluating the opportunity and the methods. I could go more on and on with all that it says here, but let's just say that something like comprehensive sexuality education here in the state of Washington is a travesty and a tragedy. And insofar as uh, transgender ideology, it's an ideology. That whole approach to uh, sex and gender and an understanding of uh, development of one's own sense of sexual identity is a an undermining and an overthrowing of what is the truth of God. It's the truth of God. It's the truth that has come from God. God is our creator. He has given us the truth. And, and why is that so important? The truth is, is what's going to set you free. The truth is what is going to lead to flourishing. And so when you have a false ideology and a demonically false ideology, it's only going to lead to doubt, confusion, darkness, chaos, bondage. Uh, which will only further lead into an enhanced uh, uh, way of life that is continually marked by destructiveness rather than flourishing. No matter how much you try to cover it over, gloss it over in social media, in movies, in TV shows, because it's false, because it's darkly false, because it's not just a little bit off, it is demonically off, it leads these innocent kids naively into tremendous darkness and bondage. And for many of them who end up taking hormones and end up doing surgeries that are often um, irreversible, you lead to damage that impacts the rest of their lives. Boy, this document, Educational Guidance and Human Love, wow, 1984, man, 38 years ago. They could not even have imagined what we're facing today, how far we have fallen and been dragged into the pit. And sadly, even Catholic school principals and presidents are, uh, are allowing this in the name of tolerance or compassion. And they're just compassionately letting kids fall into dark, demonic bondage that is so destructive to them and to those around them. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. And uh, last night I went digging into a box of books and came out with a handful of books. One of them was Educational Guidance and Human Love. The first one I mentioned was the book Confession. I'll come back around to that. That's going to be my safety net book that I'll talk to towards the end of the program. But I'm holding in my hands a book by Walker Percy. Now, Walker Percy is a Southern novelist, uh, uh, novel writer, uh, and you might, that's how many of you may have know him. 
uh, he's a Catholic, but he also wrote essays. And one of his greatest areas of fascination was um, language and understanding the distinct characteristic of what makes us human um, is the way that we are able to communicate in language. And, and it's more than that. That's a simple statement that has profound implications. But he wrote a book called The Message in the Bottle. And he begins, uh, he begins in the beginning of the book, the first chapter, uh, with some fascinating questions. I'm going to just read some to you. Uh, he's getting you to think. He's trying to get you to kind of shake you loose, um, shake you loose uh, from your um, uh, from from the lethargy of just living life today. He says, "Why does this is how the book begins? Why does man feel so sad in the 20th century?" Now, again, obviously, this was written this was written about 50 years ago. Um, why does man feel so bad in the very age when more than in any other age he has succeeded in satisfying his needs and making over the world for his own use? Why has man entered on an orgy of war, murder, torture, and self-destruction unparalleled in history and in the very century when he had hoped to see the dawn of universal peace and brotherhood? Why do people so often feel bad in good environments and good in bad environments? Why do people often feel so bad in good environments that they prefer bad environments? Why does a man often feel better in a bad environment? Uh, why is a, a man apt to feel bad in a good environment, say suburban Short Hills, New Jersey, on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon? Why is that same man apt to feel good in a very bad environment, say an old hotel on Key Largo during a hurricane? Uh, why have more people been killed in the 20th century than in all other centuries put together? Why is man, war man's greatest pleasure? Uh, what would man do if war were outlawed? Uh, okay, then he continues on. I'm going to jump ahead. He says, Why is it that a man riding a good commuter train from Larchmont to New York, whose needs and drives are satisfied, who has a good home, loving wife and family, a good job, who enjoys unprecedented cultural and recreational facilities, uh, often feels bad without knowing why? Why is it that if such a man suffers a heart attack and taken off the train at New Rochelle, regains consciousness and finds himself in a strange place, he then comes to himself for the first time in years perhaps in his life and begins to gaze at his own hand with a sense of wonder and delight. Uh, and then he goes on. Uh, why is it that when Franz Kafka would read aloud to his friends stories about the sadness and alienation of life in the 20th century, everyone would laugh until tears come? Why is it harder to study a dogfish on a dissecting board in a zoological laboratory in college where one has proper instruments in a proper light than if one would be if one were marooned on an island and having come upon a dogfish on the beach and having no better instrument than a pocket knife or bobby pin, one began to explore the dogfish? Why is it difficult to see a painting in a museum, but not if someone should take you by the hand and say, I have something to show you in my house and lead you through a passageway and upstairs into the attic and there show the painting to you? What would you do if a stranger came up to you on a New York City street and before disappearing into the crowd gave you a note which read, I know your predicament. It is such and such. 
be at the southeast corner of Lindell Boulevard and Kings Highway in St. Louis at 9 a.m. April 16. I have news of the greatest importance. And then here's the last one. Where are the Hittites? Why does no one find it remarkable that in most world cities today, there are Jews, but not one single Hittite? Even though the Hittites had a great flourishing civilization, while the Jews were uh, nearby, were a weak and obscure people. When one meets a Jew in New Orleans, in New York, or New York, or Paris, or Melbourne, it is remarkable that no one considers the event remarkable. What are they doing here? But it is even more remarkable to wonder, if there are Jews here, why are there not Hittites here? Where are the Hittites? Show me one Hittite in New York City. <laughs> so Walker Percy, what's he doing in that book? He is trying to shake us out of like staying on the same tracks. Have you ever been like, oh, hey, let's go out to dinner. Let's go on a date night. And Carrie and I end up talking about the same things. And the conversation stays in the same lanes. And there's a comfortability and there is maybe a limitation of just seeing things in the same old way. So there's nothing fresh. There's nothing new. There's nothing that breaks us out of the doldrum, breaks us out of the, the accepted way that we have come to see things. And Walker Percy is trying to shake us out of that by raising questions that maybe are new, different, fresh. And in some ways, he is also um, teeing up some of the themes that are going to show up later in the book, The Message in the Bottle. And in fact, the, my favorite chapter is the chapter entitled The Message in the Bottle. I'm not going to dig into it a lot, but I'll just mention one thing about that um, that chapter called Message in the Bottle, because it it impacted me. It gave me an understanding of the nature of evangelization almost more profound than any other document I've read. And, you know, I've read many church documents on evangelization. John Paul II, Paul VI, uh, even um, Paul VI, uh, his first encyclical even, not just Evangelii Nunciandi, uh, Agentes, uh, earlier uh, popes and, and uh, saints writing about the call to evangelize, of course the scriptures, right? Jesus Christ and, and the New Testament, the call to evangelize. And so let's put the Bible in, in one category, but then say, what does it mean to evangelize? What does it mean to proclaim the good news, the gospel? of Jesus Christ. Walker Percy in his book, The Message in the Bottle, makes a distinction that I just never heard before. And as I pondered it and have pondered it now for 40 years, uh, it has, not not quite 40, 35 years, uh, it continues to make a strong impression on me, something that I I really take to heart when, when it comes time to talking to other people about Christ. And what's that distinction? He makes a distinction between knowledge that can be known anywhere at any time, theoretically, it can be known at any time and anywhere, versus news. News is a kind of communication that is bringing 
to the attention of a hearer something that is irrepeatable, something that is new, and something that, um, when heard, engages by necessity the one who hears it. So news, by its very necessity, engages the hearer of the news in such a way that if you do not respond, that becomes your response. Not to respond is simply to have made a decision about the news quality of the communication. What am I saying? Well, let's let's dig into this, and then I'm going to apply it. I'm going to apply it to your life when it comes to talking about Jesus Christ in the Catholic faith, okay? This will be very, very important, especially parents to kids um, or to other loved ones where you want to help them understand Jesus Christ and the faith, okay? The difference between knowledge that can be known anywhere, I'm just going to call that information, the difference between information and news, is the way in which news implicates the hearer of the communication in a way that information doesn't, okay? Okay, so here's a proclamation of information. Two plus two equals four, okay? There you go. The earth rotates around the sun, uh, uh, rotates around the sun, uh, and light travels at about, what, 300,000 miles a second? Is that right? Is that right? No, 100,000, 300,000 kilometers? Oh, man. No, 186,000. That's it. 186,000 miles a second. Uh, so, you're right. There are, there are things, there are facts. There are things that are that are true. There There's information that's out there. And you know what? When you hear it, it's, you're like, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, but not a big deal. So information, it's something that can be heard anytime, anyway. Uh, not anyway. It can be heard uh, at any time by anyone, and they can take it in, and they can remain distant from what they've heard. Not so with news. And in the book, uh, The Message in the Bottle, Walker Percy uses the example of the ride of Paul Revere. The British are coming, the British are coming. And that's an example of news. And uh, Paul Revere is the news bearer. And those who hear the news as he rides from town to town and makes his way to Lexington, the Lexington Green, to uh, where Hancock and Adams are, and is announcing the British are coming, the folks whom he wakes up in the towns on the way to Lexington and Concord, um, you know, coming riding from uh, Boston, the Old North Church, right? Uh, one if by land, two if by sea. Uh, so the people have to make a decision. Here comes Paul Revere knocking on a door in the middle of the night, and he says, the British are coming. What is he saying? The troops are, are, are landing, they're coming ashore, and they are coming to attack the revolutionaries. And what are you going to do about it? You've got to make a decision. Are you going to get dressed and are you going to come and are you going to be part of the minute men, the men who can get dressed and be ready to go in a minute? Or will you not? Are you going to say, this guy's drunk. This guy, he's just making it up. I mean, you know, can it wait until tomorrow? Right? Is it really that important that we take action right now? And Paul Revere's like, I got to go. I got to keep moving. And he moves on. And these guys have to make a decision. And you know what? Uh, 
how you decide to relate to the herald of the message and how you evaluate the credibility of the message itself impacts what you're going to do. And so when he eventually gets to Lexington, right, the Minutemen gather, uh, Hancock and Adams actually flee, and, um, and, and there you have the, the, the shot heard around the world, right? So the beginning of the, um, uh, not quite the beginning of the Revolutionary War, but April 19th, 1775, you have, right, the beginning of the, of the conflict here. So, um, so here we have an example of, of news, of news versus knowledge, or news versus information, and Walker Percy brings out in his book, The Message in the Bottle, in the chapter called The Message in the Bottle, the idea that Christianity is a proclamation not of information or knowledge that can be learned anytime, anywhere, by anyone, you know, given the right circumstances, but at the essence of Christianity is news. It's news. And here comes the challenge. The challenge is that for too many believers, too many cultural Catholics, too many of us, we did not first learn about the message of the gospel as if it were news, but rather we learned it as if it was information, as if it was knowledge and oftentimes it was knowledge, what? To be memorized. Let's memorize this correct, revealed information. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Jesus Christ, born of Mary, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, comes from the Father and reveals the Father and the Holy Spirit, that God is the Blessed Trinity, Right, And we could go on and on and on with what? A whole bunch of facts, of information. And when we hear and receive the good news of Christianity, the good news of our Catholic faith, as if it's information to be memorized, what have we not done? We have not received it as a message that is intimately and profoundly and completely implicating our lives in such a way that we are called upon to make a decision, to take an action. And everything is at stake in that. Everything is at stake in recognizing that this message that Jesus brings and is is a message that necessarily and of its essence requires us to recognize he's addressing me, my condition, my situation, my life, and I must respond. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. It's breaking in. It's breaking in upon you. Now you have to take an action. What's the proper action? Repent and believe the good news. More on this in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you today. I went digging into a box of books 
um, a box of my old theology books, philosophy books, uh, some fiction, nonfiction, books that were important enough that they made it through the cut. <laughs> so many of these books were given away. Books that were not that valuable were thrown away over the course of the years and all of the moves. Well, the books that remain are particularly meaningful to me or valuable to me. And Walker Percy, The Message in the Bottle, I think, has had a profound impact on my life because for since I left the seminary, one of the principal areas of formation that I've engaged in is in the work of evangelization. And just understanding that one concept, that one principle that I laid out just before the break, that at the essence of Christianity is an announcement of news and not knowledge. News meaning it requires a response. And until we make a response that's adequate and fitting for the announcement that was made, have we really heard the good news? Have we heard the good news if we haven't responded to it? And so, uh, once again, I'll just give you the simplest of examples um, about this and then apply it to Christianity for our own lives and then for the lives of others. So, it's imagine uh, you're in a classroom, you're a student, and there's a teacher teaching, and then all of a sudden, in comes, a, uh, in comes the principal, and he's sweating, and he's alarmed, and he interrupts the teacher and with great energy states that there's a bomb in the building and it's about to go off and he knows the one door that can lead you to safety. Follow me. And he goes running out the door. Now, what do you do? Immediately, you have to make a decision. Is he kidding? Or did he mean it? And what are the signs of credibility? Well, he just burst in. He didn't knock. He had this alarm on his face. He had this urgency, this sincerity, this intensity, the sweat. He had all the physical signs that if he's acting, man, he's doing a really good job of it. He's really playing the part full in and full on, right? He's all in and full on to like play that part to just act and fake it. Or he's actually heralding some news that requires... Um, that requires a response. And the response is, follow me. I know the way out. And if you, if you accept that he's a credible herald and you realize that the message he's saying actually has a big impact on your life, then what are you going to do? You're going to do what he says. Follow me. I know the one way out. And you're going to follow him out because you accept the credibility of the messenger and the credibility of the message. So Walker Percy goes into these different facets and factors in the book. And again, it's been, I have reflected on this, this theme literally for decades because it's so important when it comes to um, understanding the faith for ourselves and when it comes to sharing the faith with others. Okay, so first for ourselves. I just announced what the message of Jesus is. The kingdom of God is at hand. At hand means it's, it's imminent. It's the British are coming, right? It's, it, it's coming over the wall. It's like the tsunami. Okay, wait a minute. There's that big wave. It's coming to shore right now. Here it comes. The kingdom of God is going to roll over you. And, and 
you need to make a response. And there's a necessary response for you to adequately be ready, to be prepared, to be in the right state of being when that kingdom of God arrives. And he tells us what it is. Repent, which is turn around, turn your entire life around, and believe and trust yourself entirely, completely, fully to him. Believe this good news that the kingdom of God is him. Turn your life around. Trend, you know, reform. Well, um, how does that how does that apply to us? Well, the message of Jesus after he dies and, and is raised from the dead becomes the message about Jesus. That Jesus isn't just proclaiming the kingdom. He is the king. He's the king of kings in this kingdom. And that his coming... His coming is the inauguration of the kingdom in our lives. And how does this kingdom become victorious over the forces and powers of death that hold us down and hold us back? Well, by his passion, his death, and his resurrection. And so to summarize the essence of Christianity, to summarize the essence of our faith in as few words as possible, it's Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Right. This is the Easter season. What's the Easter cry? Christ is risen. And let's come back around to the point that Walker Percy's making. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Or Christ is risen as the essence of our faith is news. It's not just information to memorize. What happened on Easter Sunday? Christ rose on the third day. He was crucified on Good Friday. Then you become like the the, the, the disciples that were arguing on the road to Emmaus, they were announcing the gospel to Jesus, but it was as if it was bad news. Um, they, were, they announced the good news as if it was bad news. <laughs> Jesus had risen from the dead, and they were arguing about it. Uh, okay, so what about us? Well, if we only hear and learn and memorize that, really the essence of our faith is Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, it will lack the personal impact. It will lack that sense of the principle running in the room kind of impact. It'll, well, even better, it'll lack the impact of the disciples on the road to Emmaus when they encountered Jesus risen from the dead. They went running back to Jerusalem, even though they had just made the seven-mile journey, they're going to make it back at night when it's dangerous because they're overflowing with joy. Okay, well, how do we get there? How does that come to our lives? Well, think about it this way. Think about someone who has not been brought up, not been brought up with any information about Jesus. And um, all of a sudden, you say to them, I've got good news. I am a Catholic evangelist, and I want to bring you news that, and they'll say, well, what is your faith? Well, our faith, the essence of our faith, and I'm going to announce it to you right now, is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. There's the essence of our faith, that Christ has risen from the dead. And a person who hears that might just end up saying, good for him. Good for him. So what? What's the big deal? That Christ rose from the dead. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, I don't see how that relates to me. I, I don't get it. Why is, that, why is that relevant at all? And this is where you can bring up the reality that the resurrection of Christ implicates his life. 
the life of the one who's hearing this. Well, how? Well, start with the human experience. Hey, what do you notice about people that are on earth right now? Well, they're alive. That's right. Well, a little bit of reflection makes you realize that they weren't always alive, right? This one's 57 years old. This one's 37 years old. This one's seven years old. This one's 87 years old, right? So you notice that all of those who are alive at one point were not alive and they were all born and they didn't choose to be born, right? They, they found themselves here alive on earth. And what else do we notice about people that are alive? Well, people that are alive, well, one day will no longer be alive. People who are alive will die. Okay. And look around and you notice that pretty much, well, not pretty much, everybody that I know that's ever been born is destined for death or they have already died. Well, that means me too. Well, gee, what's something else that I notice about people who have died? Well, they stay dead. Okay. Let's see. I'm born. Okay. Didn't choose it, but now here I am. I'm alive. I'm looking around at other people who are alive. They die and they stay dead. So as I look towards my future, my horizon, what do I notice? Well, it looks like I'm going to die. And as far as I can tell, I'm going to stay dead. And it's in that situation, that predicament, that human condition that you can bring the announcement, Christ is risen. Christ has conquered death. And when they say good for him, they'll say, no, 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 good for you. You see, let me tell you the rest of the story that this person whom I just called Christ, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a man, but he wasn't only a man. He was God. And he came among us because of our predicament. And he came among us to take upon himself all of the negative aspects, the suffering, the pain, the darkness, the sin, and the consequences of that, namely death. And he embraced it all he went through it all and he came out victorious over it all not just his own death but your death too he died all of our deaths and he rose in our place in order to give us a way out of death that's good news welcome back to sound insight this is tom curran i'm delaying a little longer than I expected on Walker Percy's The Message in the Bottle, but it it's such an important message, such an important uh, theme to bring out that our life of faith is going to be something that radiates from our lives when our lives have become completely caught up in the message of the gospel which is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That Christ's death and resurrection involved my death, and and therefore I can look forward to the resurrection. So that I've experienced victory over death and anticipated in Christ, and I can begin to taste it even now. And so I'm not the most pitiable of men who thinks death is the end and stuck in that circumstance. No, 
There's a way out. There's one who is the way, who led the way, and who's saying, if you follow me on the way, if you give yourself to me, if you join in my body, if you become part of my life, which is the reason for which I came, then you too will share that victory over death. That's good news. That's news that, frankly, people are dying to hear. People are open to hear when they realize they're dying. And this points to one of the, again, the, the big tragedies of our time is that let's obscure the notion of death. Let's obscure, let's hide, let's cover up, let's busy ourselves so we don't have to think about our predicament, our condition. And the gospel is full of stories where people experience uh, redemption, where they experience life because they were confronted with their condition, their situation. They knew their situation, their predicament, and they took the action necessary to address it well, to overcome it. And so uh, that, for me, is why it's just being able to like name it like that, being able to reflect on it based on those lines is so very helpful to me. Not only in my own life, personally, like in my own life, personally, it's a matter of saying, okay, I, in studying the faith, I don't want to just let it be content that I'm memorizing. I don't want to just learn more and more and more information that in some way is not also being integrated into that concept of news, into that sense of there's something being heralded here. There, there's, there's something that is meant to help me come alive in God's kingdom more fully through this teaching. Let me see if I can discover what that is, welcome that truth into my life, and begin to live that truth out. That is so powerful, or can be. Uh, the alternative is to, to just say, I'm growing in my faith because I'm memorizing more information, I'm reading more and more books. It's not enough just to read books. It's to have the Word become flesh, and that flesh then radiates into the world, right? Uh, so, um, so Walker Percy bringing that out is so important, not only for us as we are striving to be disciples, that we have to hear this message and receive it ourselves, but also in handing it on. When you think about what are you doing to help your kids grow in faith, yes, please bring them to catechism class. Yes, please bring them to classes where they can learn more about their faith. But beware, 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 beware that if kids, especially when they're young and they hit their tween and teen years, high school years, the only thing or the dominant and most prominent thing that they are understanding about their faith is that it's just a whole bunch of content to be memorized and rules to be followed. Content to be memorized, the teachings of the church, and rules to be followed, the commandments and the Beatitudes. If that's all they get from the practice of their faith, then it is what Cardinal Ratzinger called the, a heavy weight and a burden and that the essence of Christianity is being missed. Because the essence of Christianity, in the words of uh, prior to becoming Pope Benedict, uh, uh, the then Cardinal Ratzinger, the essence of Christianity is this 
this, uh, this necessary center is this encounter with the living God who approaches us. And when he becomes Pope, it's his most famous line, it really is, in his encyclicals, comes from his first encyclical, that being Christian is not the result of uh, a profound idea or an ethical choice, which is what? The content in the, in the commandments. Being Christian is not the result of a profound idea or an ethical choice, but the encounter, that's, the, that's a meaning that changes the direction of your life. The encounter with an event, a person, Jesus Christ, that gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. Remember that I talked about the horizon of your life without Christ is what? It's death. That's the horizon of your life. That death is the end. Everyone who dies stays dead for those who don't have Christ. Well, if you have Christ, he gives you a new horizon. That new horizon is what? Christ is risen. Death is overcome. Death isn't the end. But he beckons you to eternal life. Eternal life with the Father. That, that's the new horizon. And guess what? A decisive direction. It gives a whole direction for our lives. And I wonder, I wonder why we don't see more decisive young Catholics, why we don't see more decisive young adult Catholics, why we see, don't see more decisive, frankly, adult Catholics like us trying to raise our kids to be decisive in their faith. The reason why is that I'm not sure, one of the reasons why is that I'm not sure that we live in this new horizon, this horizon of the resurrection implying, impacting our lives. Uh, because we haven't really felt our predicament our condition, then the solution isn't maybe all that applicable. It isn't all that um, powerful. Well, I got to tell you, if you find if you find people who are open to the conversation, you can literally walk them down the trail that I just did, and I have in situations of evangelization, even knocking on people's doors. Came in one time. And it was a mom was there. She had a couple of her kids and her sister was visiting. And they were all Catholics, but not practicing their faith, um, not going to church anymore. I was knocking door-to-door evangelization. They welcomed me in. And I just started talking to them about who's God to them and what is their faith. And just started talking about the experience of life. Experience of life is there's a meaning to life. And there's a sense of goodness in in life, and and we want to flourish in life. But recognizing that, guess what? We didn't create ourselves. And if we take a look at the horizon of our lives, what do we see in front of us? Let's cast out 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years. Yeah, that's death. And then where do we go from there? Well, I don't want to think about it. I don't, I'm not comfortable. That's, that's not an easy question. Well, no, let's, let's face it. Let's face our predicament. Let's not just hide and cover our eyes. Let's not make pretend it's not real. And, um, and from there, uh, be able to, uh, and I remember this is, this is a question that is innate in us. It is, it's innate in us. I remember I must've been only six or seven years old. Um, we were, we, uh, my mom would stand at the doorway of our bedrooms and she would lead us in our family prayers. And I can remember asking her, uh, I said, Mom, what happens when we die? And her answer was so interesting. She, Don't worry about it. 
Don't worry about it. That's so far in the future. Why, why are you even worrying about that right now? And I just, even then, as like a six or seven-year-old, I thought, well, even if I don't think about it, it's not going to go away. You know, it's a long time in the future, but let's say it's 90 years in the future. It's still not going away. It's still there. And I can not think about it, follow my mom's guidance at that moment, um, but it would bubble back up again. And there would be this sense of even panic, like, what do I do? I'm stuck. I'm stuck in a life that uh, is going to end in death. And it was only with the encounter with Christ, the encounter with Jesus Christ, that pulls that sting of death, that gives a new horizon. And that is one among so many reasons why we Catholics, if we call ourselves an Easter people, that means it's a people who not only believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but somehow have been touched by the very resurrection of Christ from the dead and can witness to the reality that Christ is risen from the dead by the freedom and the joy and the peace we have as we face the obstacles of life and the ultimate obstacle, which is death, that it has become a door for us and we're not afraid. That's good news. That's the message in the bottle. Thank you, Walker Percy. And thank you for joining me today on Sound Insight as I dug into a box of books. All right, join me tomorrow. God bless your day.